a second. Why on earth is the servant of the Lord, Moses, arguing with God back and forth, making all these excuses? It's uncomfortable to watch the scene as a reader thinking, listen, Mo, God is about to any moment just take you out if you don't be quiet and obey him. But this morning, as we continue our series called Fearless, discovering the joy of replacing fear with faith, we're going to look at how fear is fueled. We're going to look at how fear is strengthened, so to speak. And it's done so, one of the ways, at least, by our part of making excuses to the Lord. Yesterday, I was walking somewhere out with my oldest, or my oldest son at home, and he had on a football t-shirt that our school uh, gave the players last year. They had a disappointing year, his junior year, and almost went to the championship. And so in order to motivate them, the coach made a t-shirt that simply said on the front, no excuses. <laughs> and on the back, it had uh, our logo. And the whole point, the whole year is forget about last year, no excuses, we're moving forward this year. And as he's wearing that shirt, I forgot he had it on. Somebody looked at him and said, I like that shirt. I looked at it and said, yes, I, I like it too. No excuses. The, the problem with excuses is that there is usually a small nugget or kernel of truth mixed in with the excuse. There's just enough truth there to make us fuel something that is not true. So a lie grows next to the truth and it gets everything diluted, unfortunately, stronger as well. And in this story, in Exodus 3, we're going to look today at five excuses that fuel fear. Some background to this event has to do with Moses, who was a Hebrew child that, through a sovereign series of events, grew up and was raised in the land of Egypt in royalty. And for 40 years, he lived a life of luxury as an Egyptian a regal person would do, yet he maintained his length and identity with the Hebrew people. And one day in Exodus chapter 2, we read that the, while the Egyptians were continuing to oppress the Hebrews, that he saw an Egyptian man mistreating a Hebrew. And so he got upset and stepped in to sort of uh, stop the, the fight or stop the abuse. And when he did so, the scene got violent. We don't exactly know what happened or how it happened, but the Egyptian was killed by Moses. And what he had done had gotten out. It had gotten out to the Hebrews that Moses was someone that could turn on them, and, and word had gotten out to the Egyptian rulers as well that Moses had done something very wrong. And so Moses fled. He ran and did not look back, and he ran out into the wilderness and sat by a well and was found by a priest of a pagan group known as the Midianites. He was taken in under their wings and, and was given a, a daughter of the priest named Zipporah. And so he became, as far as we can tell, an able and successful farmer for the next 40 years. And so he is 
walking back over to the land of Israel and where is the modern day Mount Sinai one day as an 80 year old and a normal day turns into a very bizarre day when he looked over and he saw a fire and he saw that a bush was on fire but the strange thing about this burning bush was that it was not being consumed it was maintaining all of the the structure that the bush originally held as he drew closer, he heard the words of his name, Moses, and that got his attention. He said, here I am. And the Lord told him to take off his sandals because the place he was standing was holy ground. Well, if that happened to you, the next thing you'd be doing was going to the edge of your feet and quickly taking off those sandals and trembling, listening for more. And at that point, Moses heard some welcome words as one who still maintained a love for his people Israel, but he didn't know what to do. He'd already tried to help them, and that was a disaster. He was a wanted man in Egypt, as far as that was concerned, and misunderstood by his people. He had lived a safe and quiet life on the edge of another part of town, so to speak. Well, God begins to tell Moses, I have heard the cry of your people. You see, for 40 years, Israel continues, Lord, have mercy on us. We're here mistreated as slaves. Have mercy on us. Give us our land. Give us relief. And God told Moses, the Lord has heard you. I can imagine deep within his soul, even though he didn't seem like he was that close to the Lord at that time, he was happy to hear the good news that God was concerned. And not only was God concerned, but he was going to do something about it. There are certain times where we're concerned about some, someone or something, but we don't feel like there's anything we can do. Have you ever felt so frustrated that you really cared, but you couldn't do a thing? Well, when God says, I really care, and guess what? I can do something. Moses was like, great. Well, in verse 10 of, of Exodus chapter 3, Moses ceases to be excited because in this great speech of the Lord, he says this, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Have you ever felt something was really great until it involved you? <laughs> You're all for it if it involves others. <laughs> and if it involves someone else's money or someone else's body or someone else's time or their energy, you think it's an incredible idea. I would have loved to have seen Moses face at that point. He's like, great, great, great. I'm sending you. Not great. Well, all of a sudden we see the first excuse that became sort of a fear epidemic in Moses' life in verse 11 and 12 of Exodus chapter 3. It says this, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? I'm sorry, verse 11. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And, and so the first excuse that, God, that, that Moses gives to God is sort of the who me? Are you, you, you must have me confused with someone that can actually be effective and productive. Why me, Lord? And so excuse number one on your outline this morning that, that fuels fear is this. This is too much for me. 
Now, on your outline today, you're going to see five fears listed, and the asterisk underneath them is God's remedy or God's answer for dealing with that fear. And so we see in verse 12 that God's answer under number one is this, that God reminds us of his presence. When Moses says, who am I? God simply says this, I will be with you. Now, you're going to see that principle in our study for the next few weeks on fear again and again and again. For that seems to be God's method of dealing with fear is simply to remind us, I am with you. But we're all consumed with our ordinariness. Lord, I can't. This is too much for me. I can't do this. I'm 80 years old. I am on the downside of my life. I am a tongue-tied farmer that has been running from my past for 40 years. You have got the wrong guy. God didn't listen to those things. All he said was, I will be with you. You remember that bully that lived a couple of streets over from you that you didn't like to see that often when you were growing up? Remember when he would walk by your house and you were alone, you would feel nervous? But remember if he walked by your house and your dad was there, or your big brother there, or your best friend that worked out was there, all of a sudden you felt different. Some of you going, no, you must be talking about your own personal life. But you, you know how you feel when there's danger, when you're alone, it's one thing, but all of a sudden... When there is strength next to you, you feel completely different. Uh, what, if, what if you got a large summer, central Florida summer electricity bill, and you open it up, and of course you are nervous when you look at the amount in the summer. Would you be nervous if someone who had seemingly endless resources said, every time you get your electricity bill, I'm going to pay it? Some of you are like, there's no way you can't be nervous on a Florida electric bill in the summer. But that would make a little bit of difference in your mind. All of a sudden you realize, wait, someone is with me. I'm going to have a different attitude toward this. So one of the things we need to be praying as we battle our fears and not let the excuses fuel our fears is, Lord, give me a greater sense of an awareness of your presence. There was a uh, little five-year-old boy that was sort of bugging his mother while she was trying to make dinner. And, and she looked at little Johnny and said, Johnny, would you go over to the pantry over in the corner and uh, get me a, that can of tomato soup? And he said, it, it was way over there. And he said, I don't like going in that, uh, that pantry, Mom, because it's, uh, it's dark in there. And she said, well, go, there's a light in the middle. I'll just go get that switch on. He goes, I don't like going in there. It's, it's dark. And she persisted, and she looked at him as a, as a Christian woman and said, Jesus will be with you. And so he goes over to the pantry, opens up the door and cracks the door, looks how, how dark it is and says, he, he calls out and says, Jesus, if you're in there, could you hand me the tomato soup? <laughs> Sometimes the promises that Jesus is with us don't comfort us as much as they should, but we have to learn that the presence of God is enough. And when Jesus says, I will be with you, we must learn to savor that and have a greater recognition of the presence of God. Now, the second excuse that also fuels fear is in verses 13 through 15 of Exodus 3. And it's actually a very hard one to state. 
because none of us have the courage to phrase it this way, but this is exactly what, Joseph, what Moses meant. And number two in your outline says this, I'm not sure God is enough. You may not have said those words, but likely all of us have demonstrated that action. Because our nervousness or because our lack of faith, we were in, in a sense saying, I don't know that even the Lord will be enough to see me through. So in verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? This is a bizarre request because Moses understands who he is talking to. He is speaking to the one true God, the creator of all things. And he was also specifically known to Moses and to his chosen people as the God of Hebrew, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew he was talking to, but he was asking for what, what name shall I tell them? And he, didn't, he wasn't talking about a personal name. When we uh, use a personal name, we're like, excuse me, what, what's your name? And we want to know, what shall I call you? But to Hebrew people, a name meant more than what you're addressed. It meant what is the significance of your name. What is the meaning behind your name? When we were naming our children, we tried to think of what their name, not only what they would be called, but what their name meant. And I remember our third child, we, one day Susie had some medical situation while she, was, uh, while she was carrying our third child, Joseph. And we thought she'd lost the baby. We quickly went to the doctor, and he began to monitor the situation. And we heard the, the sound we'd heard many times before in our previous children of that beautiful heartbeat. And he looked at us and said, there's your baby. And I remember we were weeping uh, like babies ourselves there in the doctor's office. And, and we decided that day we were going to name him Joseph, which means gift of God. That God was gifting us with a child, and he indeed was a gift because we thought that he would not be. And so names can mean something. And so Moses was saying, Lord, I'm not sure that you are going to be enough. I want to know the significance of your name. I want to know what you're going to mean to me and to our people in order to accomplish what you're saying. It might be a stalling technique Moses was using, but he could have really wondered, are you going to be able to make it, God? And so the burden seems to be on God to convince him that he was enough. But Moses, the Lord's answer to Moses is somewhat surprising. In verse 14, he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, I don't owe you this great explanation of all the things you want me to say and be. I simply am who I am. I absolutely exist. He says, this is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, when we are struggling to wonder if God is enough, one of the ways that God combats our excuse is number, under number two is simply this, that God teaches us his character. He teaches us what his name means. And what did God mean when he said, I am? He, he's basically telling us that God is the one who is living, he is eternal, and he is sufficient. 
All that we ever need is in his very essence and his character. That he is the absolute one that does not need anything from us. He never had an beginning and he will never have an end. He is not uh, in need of our worship. He is not in need of our money. He is not in need of our help. Because he is the all-sufficient one, absolute in and of himself. One day I was sort of asking a a bit of a trick question to a small group I was meeting with, and I asked the group, who has had the biggest influence on your life? And we went around the room, and someone would say a parent, others would say a friend or a coach or a pastor. Most people would, would say some family member as well. And then I asked the question and got the strangest looks. I said to them, who do you think has had the most influence on God? And it was silence in the room. They looked at me as if I were crazy. I said, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? And they're like, yeah. I said, because the answer is no one. <laughs> no one's had an influence on God. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yes, it pleases God when we obey him, and it displeases him when we disobey him. And God, there is emotion to God, but we don't impact God. We don't change God because he is the changeless one. He's not in process of becoming something greater and better or more wonderful because he is. He already is the sum total of all perfection. And God was saying to this trembling 80-year-old shepherd that I am your everything. I'm all you'll ever need. I am the one that is running the show. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I am the savior. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I am the one true God. And that's all you need, Moses. And as we come to God with fear after fear after fear after fear, and we get better at our excuses, we need to remember the character and the all-sufficiency of the one true God. Well, if you were having this kind of personal talk with God, I think we'd be winding down the excuses. Not so the, the temeritous Moses, the one with all kinds of foolish boldness at the beginning of chapter 4, after God sufficiently has answered him. In verse 1, Moses answers, Well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. You know what Moses is doing? He's really thinking of others here. And he is thinking that I've lost respect by that incident 40 years ago in Egypt and in, among the Hebrews, and they're not going to listen to me. They haven't seen or heard of me in 40 years. I'm a nobody to them. God just told me he'll be with me, but it's not what God said is the issue. It's what they think of me. Have you ever been so worried about what might happen that you've not paid attention to what God said will happen and so a third excuse that fuels our fear is number three on your outline this morning and that's this others will look down on me Moses had an eye to everybody else and was blind to what God was saying to him he had developed a view of success that is quite worldly yet quite natural to us in our minds success is when others think well of us or when we have at least pointed out and proved to others that we have become somebody and if we're ever going to be effective in giving our fears to God under number three we have to learn to submit our view of success to the Lord 
God was saying, I am the one that gives you success, and success is defined by faithfulness to me. And so in dramatic fashion, the Lord deals with this excuse and objection by, in verse 2, saying, Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied, just a, a walking stick, so to speak. The Lord said, Well, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. In verse 5, this, said the Lord, is that so they may believe that the Lord your God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now snakes symbolize life and power to the Egyptians. And Moses likely knew that living there for 40 years and he was saying, and of course you did not normally uh, pick it up by the tail. That was, that's a way for the snake to come around and bite you. But Moses, the Lord was saying, e even though it symbolizes life and power and something you should be in awe of to the Egyptians, if you do things my way, Moses, you're not going to have to worry about all the fears you have of other people. Follow me. And great changes can happen. I remember when I was in Africa a few weeks ago, uh, one of the pastors was showing me around some facilities they were working on. And as we went out, uh, a little bit out in the field where this new building was being erected, I looked over and I saw a small but very fast and different looking snake heading toward us. And I just said to the pastor, look there, there's a snake. And he quickly got a rock and just smashed it as quick as he could, and he held it up and showed me that the reason it looked funny is because it was a baby cobra, which we don't have very much in Florida around these parts. And I looked at it, and I was like, thank you, brother, for, ta for taking care of that. And I was just thinking at that moment, if the Lord had said to me, Cliff, go pick it up by its tail, I would have been, I would have been maybe struggling like Moses was in some of these things. But the, but the Lord, the point is not go picking up snakes by their tail. <laughs> the point is, is don't be concerned with fearing others instead of doing exactly what God tells you to do. God further demonstrated this by a fearful disease. Uh, in, in verse 6 and 7, God told him to stick his hand inside his cloak and when he pulled it out, it was leprous. And of course, leprosy was a feared disease among anyone, but it was viewed, especially by the Egyptians, to be considered completely incurable. And it was a, a frightening thing for Moses to see his leprous hand. And then the Lord told him to put it back inside his cloak, and it came out healed and clean. Now, God's point was clear. I am the difference maker, not others. So you submit your view of success to me, practice obedience and faithfulness, and I will be with you and overcome your fears. Now, one of the things about fears is that they become addictive. In verse 10, Moses has not yielded his questions yet to the Lord. Moses said to the Lord in 410, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. 
the Lord is reminding him of his incredible presence, but all Moses can do is think upon his current weaknesses. And so another excuse that fuels fear is number four on your outline, and that's this. I have too many weaknesses. His particular uh, weakness that troubled him as he thought about this prospect that God was putting before him is that he wasn't a good speaker. He was tongue-tied. He didn't communicate well. We find out later that as he submits to the Lord, he becomes a very powerful communicator. But at this point, that is the card he plays, that he is no good at speaking. And the way that God combats that is under number four, he teaches us to move your focus from your frailty to God. In verse 11, it's a powerful list of questions that all have to do with the sovereignty of God. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? God is saying that he is in charge of every ailment, of every impediment, of every weakness, whether it be physical, emotion, or some tendency in our spiritual life that he is in charge of and will use it for good. Even we find uh, in John chapter 9, Jesus saying the same thing to the man that was born blind. The people wanted to know, who sinned? This man or his parents, he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither of them. This was done that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. In other words, he said, the weaknesses, Moses, the Lord is saying to Moses, the weaknesses we have are things that can be used by God, not to be viewed as excuses that keep us from being obedient to what God has for us. Well, at this point, wouldn't you say that God has been pretty patient? I'm impressed, just touched by how merciful God is. And we know that because we know the same thing, that God is patient with us. Now, if you are a reasonable parent out there, you know that you will listen to your kid, especially if they get a little bit older, as long as they speak to you with respect. It, it, what's frustrating as the kids get older is they start making more sense, you know? You start listening to them, you're like, man, I used to could tell you this, but now you are, you're starting to make too much sense to me. But as a reasonable parent, you will listen to them as long as they speak with respect. But all of a sudden, when there's a defiance from a child and an unwillingness to do what you've asked them to do, that's when things turn in that parent-child relationship. And, and we get very frustrated with outright defiance and disobedience. So, so maybe we can sort of feel God's angst and pain right here because Moses now is illustrating something that is true in our life is that when we get to arguing with God, is when we get to depending on excuses and looking at others and us instead of the Lord, it becomes habitual. And we really see the main issue behind all of Moses' excuses exposed in verse 13. But Moses said, O oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Isn't that interesting? He didn't have any more excuses. Why? Because God had answered them all. And frankly, answered them quite well. And Moses knew it. So now the only thing left in the arsenal of Moses was this. I don't want to do this. I don't feel like doing what you say, Lord. I just flat don't want to obey you. You know what I've noticed in, in this passage is that God will work with us when we are, have 
honest inquiry, when we have honest questions before him, and we're dialoguing, we're speaking with respect, and I'm not saying that this particular passage is a model for how all our communication with God will be or should be, but God maintained patience, civility, so to speak, when there was honest inquiry. But when Moses revealed his real heart and said, I just want to do my thing, then the situation turned. In verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. Now, another thing I don't want you to read into this passage and get too much of a principle from is that God is not always as accommodating with our disobedience. God made a divine concession for Moses because he really had a plan for Moses' life. And when Moses says, I don't want to do what you said, God allows Aaron to step in and for a season become his mouthpiece. But as you will see later in the book of Exodus, this was a really bad idea. Because who was the one that built the golden calf while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord and the people were restless down below wondering where Moses had been? It was that, that golden orator, Aaron, said, okay, guys, if y'all want to build this little golden thing, that's fine. Just I'm busy watching something on my screen here, so y'all do what you're going to do. And all of a sudden, Moses came down and Aaron had allowed them to run amok and not just build an idol, but to worship the idol. And this is sort of some of the fruit of this divine concession here where Moses should have stepped up to the plate and said, Lord, you know what? You've totally convinced me. You've always been there for me. You've given me great reason to believe you. My fears are unfounded. I trust you, Lord. Instead, he's like, nah, I can't do this. You're going to have to get someone else to do it. Well, the principle here that I don't want us to miss about excuses that fuel our fear is the fifth one is this, is that somebody else can do it better. Obviously, that's true. Aaron was probably a better speaker at the moment than Moses. And there's somebody better than us at most anything God will ask us to do. But that's not the point that someone else can do it better. The point is, what does God want you to do? What is God's calling and plan for your life? What is he engineering for you to do? And God's answer, as we see in this principle at work, is to call out to God with sincere questions instead of disobedience. A couple days ago, I went with uh, my, one of, my youngest son and one of his friends out to Alexander Springs. And they went out before I, I was putting up the stuff and they were already way out on the other side of that icy I think they must ice that down every morning with just uh, truckloads and truckloads of ice so I'm getting in the springs and with every step I'm talking I'm thinking about what a bad idea this is as I'm shivering and I'm sort of my kids are out there like, yeah come on and I'm out there going this is a really bad idea and I'm sort of making every excuse I can to not be out there because of how cold I was. And then I finally put my head under and embraced it. And it was great after that. <laughs> and the point is, is that oftentimes we stop before we get to the point of being used by God. Before we get to the good part of His promises coming true. And all of a sudden we just make excuse after excuse with each footstep. And our, our fear 
gets inflamed, just like Moses. His fear got so enraged and enlarged that it led him to say, Lord, I don't want to do what you say. As we consider this this morning, I wonder if there's some excuses you've been making in your life that have affected you spiritually, that have fueled a lack of faith rather than the trust that God wants you to have. For some of you, it might be your initial act of faith, and that is receiving Christ into your life. For the scripture tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you've been resistant or hesitant to place your faith in Christ. And today, the Lord is saying that he wants the day of salvation for you to be this day. As we consider this passage, let's take a moment and bow together and enter into a time of response. Living Lord, I'm thankful of how patient you are with our weaknesses, with our fears, with our questions. And I'd like to pray today, Lord, that you would engineer circumstances to draw people to your truth. Thank you for your word. And thank you that we can have a real relationship with you. Draw people as we now respond. In Christ's name we pray, amen.